Let's give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word from Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this account before us, for preserving it for us through the ages that we might be able to hear from you, to hear even directly from our savior, Jesus. So help us, Lord, to take your word to heart. Father, I pray that you would work in the hearts of your people by your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would work in the hearts of those who may not know you. And I pray, Lord, for all of us that we'd be encouraged by your grace. King Jesus, we bow not only our knees, but even our very hearts and wills unto you. Have your way in us according to your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Expectations are nothing more than premeditated disappointments. Say that again expectations are nothing more than premeditated disappointments. That was a point being made uh, in a book that I read recently. It was the thesis of the book, actually. Expectations are nothing more than premeditated disappointments. To illustrate this point, the author told a story, and I'll share it with you. A young couple was recently married Their first night home after their honeymoon, the groom set his alarm clock, turned off his lamp, fell down onto his pillow, and then said to his new bride, I've got to leave for work at 6 a.m., so can you have my breakfast ready by 5.45 a.m.? Excuse me, she said. 5.45, I think, he said. I think that should be enough time for me to eat before I have to leave. Conversation wasn't done, was it? (laughs) Wait, she said. What do you mean by have your breakfast ready? Well, he answered. These two words are death words, by the way. My mom (laughs) always made me breakfast every morning. Eggs, sausage, and homemade biscuits. So I figured you would too. The author concluded this way. I thought it was funny. Somehow that young groom is still married. (laughs) And for the last six years, he has got up early every morning and fixed breakfast, not only for himself, but for both of them. It only took him one morning to realize that his wife was not his mother. Expectations are nothing more than premeditated disappointments. 
That's a valid point, right? It's a valid point, but it's not a truism. Not all expectations are premeditated disappointments, are they? But what about unrealistic, misguided, and unfounded expectations? Those most certainly can be premeditated disappointments, and often they are. Our text this morning addresses this issue of expectation. It addresses expectation both directly and clearly. And it does so by bringing us face to face with what I would call the most important question in the whole world. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You know, from the very beginning of his gospel account, Luke has gone to great lengths to write, just as he says at the very beginning, to write so that we may have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught about Jesus like layers of an onion being pulled back one by one. It has been Luke's aim to show his readers, to show us up to this point, exactly who Jesus is and what Jesus does to prove who he is. For in Luke's mind, and even in my own mind this morning, deciding on and embracing who Jesus is is the most crucial decision that any one of us will ever make. So after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which we looked at last week, Luke presents Jesus here in verse 18 as praying alone. He's praying and his disciples are nearby. Now we can't be sure what he was praying about, but perhaps it has to do with the question that he asks them there at the end of verse 18. You see it? Who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? The answer that follows for us, that uh, sorry, the answer they give forms for us the first of three points that we'll consider this morning. If you're taking notes, here's point one, the opinion of the populace. The opinion of the populace. I think I already heard some groaning there. The opinion of the populace. The answers given are actually similar to the ones that Luke told us about back in verses seven and eight above, right? When Herod uh, was asking about Jesus. Um, Some were saying that he was John the Baptist. They're saying this man, Jesus, is John the Baptist. Now to us, that sounds really strange, right? It sounds strange to our ears. Though Jesus and John were cousins, we know that they came from two different families. They were given two different names and they had two different missions in life. John was the forerunner, right? He was the herald and Jesus was the king. John went before the king. Nevertheless, most people in Galilee had never met, let alone seen John. I mean, it wasn't like our day. When you can hear of a person and within seconds, what can you do? Take out your phone, Google them. You can see what they look like. You can actually hear them if they've been recorded and you can find out everything about their life right then, right there. I know this might be a surprise to some of you, but John had no followers on Instagram or TikTok, okay? None. Nobody who hadn't seen him, he hadn't seen him, right? Unless you were there. Everything was secondhand information. People knew John by his reputation and by word of mouth. 
And since they, they, they knew what they were hearing about Jesus, right, sounded so much like what they had heard about John, it was natural for them to associate the two men in their minds, especially because they were related. Both Jesus and John had large followings. Both men were present at the baptism. Both men preached the same basic message about the kingdom of God. In fact, the association was so close, and Herod brought this up, right? The association between them was so close that, that people who knew that John was dead, what were they saying? That this is actually John resurrected. That John had come back to life. This is the second coming of John. That's why they're saying this is John the Baptist. So who do people say that Jesus is? For a lot of them, it was John the Baptist. For others though, as the disciples make clear, it was Elijah. Why? Well, the prophecy given in Malachi 4.5, I'll read it for you, but you can note to look it up later in context. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. They read that and said, Elijah's coming back. Elijah's physically coming. So many devoted Jews of the day were looking for Elijah. They were looking for him to come back before the day of the Lord. But in truth, as we know, sitting in our sandals today, not in theirs, is that Malachi's prophecy was actually about John. How do we know that? Well, Luke made it clear in 117 when the angel talks to John's father, Zechariah, he tells him that he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then quotes from that text. Yet even so, because Jesus was proving himself to be a great prophet, and we don't have time to dive into this, but you can look this up. A lot of the miracles that Jesus has performed up to this point were similar to miracles that Elijah had performed, providing bread, raising a widow's son, things like that, that people are like, this obviously is Elijah. Elijah's back. Malachi 4, 5 is happening in our day. This is Elijah. Yet still others were undecided, right? They were undecided which prophet he might be. I mean, they knew that they were in the presence of someone great. They knew they were in the presence of someone who was just like all those other mighty men of scripture. Think of maybe Moses or Jeremiah, someone like that. They know that they're in that presence, but they just didn't know who. It's just one of the great prophets has come. We could go on and on, but here's the bottom line. People had all kinds of opinions on who Jesus was, even when he was right there, right there to see. Is it the same today? I would say it is. Ask random people on the street. I hope you do that, I do. That's one of my favorite questions to ask. Who do you think Jesus is? Ask them and you might get as many different answers as the number of people that you ask. It's fascinating. Some people say, yeah, that Jesus guy, that's just a legend, right? It's a, a fairy tale. Others, rational people usually, uh, will admit that Jesus did exist. They'll say, yeah, there's enough historical evidence to show that this man actually existed, but they'll deny his deity, right? They'll say, but he wasn't the son of God. Uh, but they're very interested in his teachings, right? You've heard that. He's a good teacher. They're interested in his teachings, but they want nothing to do with his miracles, with his atoning death, and don't ever mention the resurrection, right? They don't wanna hear about that. 
Others believe that Jesus was just a, a noble prophet. They might consider him a, a moral teacher. I've heard people say he was a successful politician. I've heard people say he was a wise sage. But none of these people believe that he was the son of God, the second person of the divine trinity. On the other hand, though, there are people who affirm that there is something special about Jesus, but they're not sure what it is. These are the people I love talking with the most, right? They, they're like, I love Jesus' teaching. I love the way he lived. I've even had people look at me and say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't worship him as God. Do you see the problem there? I believe in Jesus too, but I don't worship him as my savior. You see, these people are lost in a, what I would call a haze of pseudo-spirituality, right? They, they're, they're so quick to be spiritual, they don't wanna denounce anything. And so they put a, a half, maybe not even half, a small percentile faith in Jesus. I even had one person recently say, I just need a clear vision of Jesus. I offered him my glasses, but evidently we weren't the same prescription, okay? And that is snarky, I know. And I mean it, it's a great way to talk to people. These people remind me of C.S. Lewis. When C.S. Lewis was recalling his own uh, conversion in his book, Surprised by Joy, this is how he uh, likened his awakening. He said it, quote, a man, I was like a man who after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, became aware that he is now awake. That's how Lewis likened it. It's just like when I wake up in the morning, it's like, what just happened? I'm awake now, coming out of a fog. You see, people who embrace Jesus as only a part of their spiritual life, they're, they're still sleeping. Uh, in fact, they're perhaps even dead still in their sins. They're sleepwalking like zombies waiting to be brought back to life. Do you know someone like that? Someone like any of these? Do you talk to people about Jesus? Have you heard what people think about Jesus? Maybe you're here this morning and I'm really glad you are and you're not really sure who Jesus is. Maybe you've been in church your whole life. Mom and dad took you to church. You have kids now. You wanna take them to church and you're just happy to be in church. But if you were to be asked, you may not really know who Jesus is. You know what you've been told, but you haven't decided. I'm really glad you're here. I really am. I think maybe these first disciples were in the same shoes or sandals that you are. For months, they've been following Jesus. They've been listening to his words. They've been witnessing his miracles. All along, Jesus had been inviting them to consider his identity. I mean, even the demons have proclaimed who he is, right? Uh, he had been bringing them along slowly. They had made some professions along the way, but Jesus has been allowing them to reach a conclusion about who he is. And now, after asking about the opinion of the populace, he turns to them with the same question. And this is our second point this morning, if you're taking notes, the answer of the faithful. The answer of the faithful. 
Look at verse 20 again in Luke 9. Who do you, emphasis there is on you. Who do you say that I am? And Peter blurted the Christ of God. You know, when Jesus asked this question, it's almost as if the whole universe, right, could have stopped to wait to hear the answer. It was like everything would just hold its breath at this moment. That's at least how I read the drama of the account. Who do you say that I am? (gasps) Right? It's like this pause. The very son of God. They've witnessed the miracles. They've heard his teaching. The very son of God asked them, asked someone to declare his true identity. And the other thing I love, and that's why I said blurted, is because there's no room for pause, is there? And, and Luke tries to create this in, in the language that he uses. And, and then Peter, right away, you are the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God, which is you are the Messiah sent from God. Now, I hope uh, no one has fallen into this trap, but let me just say this. Christ is not Jesus's last name, okay? It's not like his first name is Jesus and his last name is Christ, right? Like I'm Dan Lehman. No, it's a title. It's Jesus the Christ, the Christ Jesus. It's the Greek equivalent to the, the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one, the one who has been chosen by God and and set apart or consecrated for sacred office. You see, in the Old Testament times, when a prophet, a priest, or a king was set apart for the holy service of God, what did they do? They anointed him. They consecrated him. You see this with all those offices. And, And many prophets and many priests and many kings were anointed to lead Israel. But all along the way, through the Old Testament, all along the way, there were hints that one day, one day God would finally send the greatest prophet that God would send the highest priest, that God would send the mightiest king of them all to finally and fully deliver his people. And this person is the Messiah, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, the one who would come from the royal city of David in his line, the, the one who would rule upon the throne of Israel over God's kingdom forever and ever. That's the Messiah. And the people were looking for the Messiah. They were waiting for this Messiah. They were waiting for the anointed one. They were waiting in hope for him to come. And so when Peter blurts out, you're the Messiah, he's saying, you are this Messiah. You are the one. Jesus didn't rebuke him, did he? Well, he does. We'll get to that in a minute. But he doesn't rebuke him for calling him this. He affirms it. But what led Peter to make such a declaration? You can speculate all day, but instead, let's turn to the parallel account in Matthew. So keep your finger here. Turn over to Matthew chapter 16. Some of you might actually be more familiar with this account than the one that Luke gives. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 15, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You see, Peter's answer is so much more than an answer that comes from inductive reasoning alone. His answer is an answer of faith, an answer revealed to him by God the Father. And make no mistakes, brothers and sisters, it's, it's not an answer that reason and evidence alone can lead a person to. It's an answer that flesh and blood cannot come to on its own. It's a supernatural answer that is given to a person supernaturally. In fact, I would say it's how anyone can give that answer. It's how anyone can come to know Jesus as the Messiah. Yeah, you have to study what Jesus has said and done in the gospels. Perhaps that's why you're here this morning. You wanna know more about Jesus and what the gospels say about him. But to come to know him or be known by him, to, to come to know him as the Messiah, the, the savior, such study has to be accompanied by the supernatural work of God's spirit. God's spirit who alone can reveal the true identity of Jesus. You see, when people are struggling with the claims of Christ, it's not just more evidence that they need. They might need that, but that's not all they need. They need a gracious work of God that changes their hearts and their minds as well. That's part of the true biblical doctrine of salvation. It's God that enables us to confess our faith in Christ. It may be rational to believe in Jesus for salvation, but no one ever comes to Jesus by reason alone. No one does. Only the spirit of God is able to persuade us to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And those just aren't my words. The words of John 1, 12 and 13. This is what the apostle John writes, inspired by God, the very word of God, but to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. Those who are born again of God are the ones who believe in him. So how did Peter come to such a faithful answer? That's the question. Hand to this most important question in the whole world. As I've already said, in the same way that any of us can come to such an answer, God revealed it to him. God revealed it to him. God revealed it to us by his spirit. Evidence helped you along the path. Perhaps your journey was a lot like mine uh, as a very scientific and, and reasoning kind of person, uh, much to the annoying annoyment of many people, okay? Uh, I had to have every question answered. And I spent lots of time reasoning and reasoning and reasoning. It helped me along the path but it wasn't until God changed my heart. It wasn't until he brought me from death unto life that I believed in him. And it's very freeing, isn't it? It's very liberating 
you know that freedom. If you've come to know Jesus, if you've wrestled and wrestled and wrestled, and then you're like, hey, one day I woke up or one day the light came on. You know how freeing that is because now your pursuit is I wanna get to know him more. And it wasn't that feeling that maybe you've had that I just, I gotta know more so I can make an informed decision. It's like buying a house or a car or a microwave and all the things I've thought about when we're buying things. No, it's good to look into it, but God changes hearts. But perhaps you've yet to give the same answer that I have given, that Peter gave, that many here have given. Perhaps you're trying to still discover who Jesus is. I'm glad you're here. Perhaps God is calling you to surrender your search. Perhaps God is calling you to bow the knee to King Jesus. My deepest hope is that you would. My deepest and most earnest prayer is that you would believe in him by faith, that he would grant you that faith in this very day, you would be saved from your sin. In fact, I invite you to do that even now. You can just shut me out the rest of the time. Take a moment and pray. Peter's confession here is, uh, from one standpoint, it's a climax of Luke's gospel to this point. If you're doing a literary analysis of Luke, you would see this as a climax of the gospel up to this point. Thus, it would seem like it's a moment to celebrate, right? And you know, put together with Matthew to get some more details, you're like, this is a moment to celebrate. You know, after months of training, the disciples are now getting it. They clearly see and understand exactly who Jesus is. Surely it was time for even Jesus to take a moment and say, good job. Guys, I'm so proud of you for understanding what I've been trying to teach you. Let's worship together, right? That's not what he does. He affirms it, as Matthew makes clear, but he does actually rebuke them. He does rebuke them. That brings us to our third and final point, the expectation of the Messiah. The expectation of the Messiah. Look again at verses 21 and 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. The word used here for strictly charged is the same word that is most often translated rebuke. Jesus rebuked them. But why? Why is he rebuking them? Why is he charging them to keep this a secret, right? Like, wouldn't you just go out and spread this around? The answer is actually pretty simple. There's a lot of expectations wrapped up in that word Messiah. There's a lot of baggage, popularly, that goes with the term Messiah. That's the simple way to put it. And knowing that Jesus was the Christ, but Jesus is really saying to them, that's not the end of the matter. That's only the beginning of the matter. In fact, we can scarcely imagine the disciples' confusion and dismay as they heard Jesus' extraordinary words about suffering and death and resurrection in verse 22. Very likely, they may have even thought he was crazy when he uttered those words. In their minds, in the, in the minds of the average Jewish person of that day, and even to today, right, the Messiah is a conquering, victorious hero. They expected the Messiah to come and throw off 
the Roman rule under which they were suffering, not die at its hands. So Jesus is actually forbidding them from speaking of it. Not forever. Just for now, he's saying, but just keep this to yourselves. Why? Because he wants them to fully understand exactly what the Messiah's mission was going to be. They're just beginning to understand who Jesus was. And they really had no clear idea of all he had come to do. If they started to tell everyone that Jesus was the Messiah now, they were bound to give people the wrong idea. At most, they may have only just been giving them a half gospel. You can think of it this way. It'd be like parents right? When we start giving instructions to a child and then halfway through the instructions, the child's like, I got it. And they run off and start to do it. Did that task get done the way you wanted it to get done? No, because you didn't finish giving the instructions. See, likewise, without the full reality of Jesus and his full gospel, telling people that Jesus was the Messiah without a full understanding of what the Messiah must do would lead to much confusion You know, it was one thing to go out and tell people that the kingdom of God was at hand and to call them to repent, which by the way, they had just done in their internship. It was another task to go out and declare that Jesus was the Messiah. They weren't quite ready for that. Their training wasn't complete, but they would be once they witnessed all that Jesus would have to endure and all that he would accomplish for them in his coming death and resurrection. You see, if expectations can be premeditated disappointments, they would certainly be setting many people up, if not their very selves, to such disappointment. For those of you not familiar with this, I encourage you this week to read Acts chapter one. Even after the death, burial, resurrection, and spending time with him, just as he's about to ascend to heaven, whether the disciples ask him, are you now going to go sit on the throne in Jerusalem? It's like head smack, right? Are you now going to? They still, this is how ingrained that mentality is in them. That aside, putting ourselves back in this time, we know disappointment of the apostles, don't we? Where were they when Jesus went to the cross? Where were they? They weren't with him, were they? They had abandoned him. They did not understand what was happening. Even though he had tried to explain it to them numerous times, they didn't get it. They simply had no category for a rejected Christ. A rejected Christ was like Pastor Layman, right? It's an oxymoron. The two words don't go together. Rejected Messiah, suffering Messiah, This just wasn't a category. It's impossible for them to understand of all the things that Jesus has ever said to them up to this point, this was no doubt the most confusing, the most shocking and the most impossible for them to understand. But here's the reality for them and for all of us. Jesus didn't come to meet their expectations. He didn't come to meet our expectations. He came to do his father's will for the plan of salvation. They had Isaiah 53 just as much as they had Malachi 4. They had all those scriptures about the suffering servant. They had all those scriptures. 
Jesus will reveal to them very clearly in his life, death, resurrection, the sending of his spirit to apply it upon their hearts and his teaching after his resurrection that he would suffer and die for their sin. So in the end, the only Christ that there will be, the only Christ that there is to confess is Christ crucified. Unless we forget Christ raised. He even tells him here, I'll be raised. It may be, it may have been hard for the apostles to look past the crucifixion, but it shouldn't be hard for us. For we know him as both crucified and raised. But just like them, we also suffer from false expectations of Jesus Christ ourselves. And those false expectations often lead to much disappointment. Our brother Nathan shared about some of those disappointments in his own life, right? You know, many today expect a Jesus Christ who is all love and no judgment. All love and no judgment. Some expect a Jesus Christ that spares them from the valleys of suffering and leads them only on the mountaintops of life's experiences. Some expect a Jesus Christ that answers all of their questions and leaves them for no reason or room to walk by faith in this life. Some expect a Jesus Christ that makes them rich. Some expect a Jesus Christ that gives them the relationship that they want. Some expect a Jesus Christ that only cares about social justice. And some people expect a Jesus Christ that looks and acts just like they do. That's right, that's not good. Now here's the question as we come to the end. Is this, is that, all of that, is that the Jesus who's revealed in scripture? Is that the Jesus that we're called to set our hope upon? So hear me when I say this. Expectations like that will be no more than premeditated disappointments. So what do you expect of Jesus Christ? What do you expect? The truth is your expectations of him are wrapped up in the very same question that we're presented with in this text. It's the most important question in the world, right? Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? I pray that your answer comes from him by his spirit through the very word of God, and that in him you would indeed find eternal life and that you would set your hope upon him each and every day until he calls you home. Amen and amen. Did you grab your bulletins?